Hey, it's Ed. Real quick, I need to thank two of our brand new Patreon supporters, April Meeker and Jordan Stanton. Thank you so, so, so much for signing up to support the podcast on a monthly basis through Patreon. It really means a lot to me. As I've said a million times, it means a lot that people invest their time to listen to the podcast. And so the idea that people have decided to support it financially just really blows my mind. So thanks to you too. And thanks to everybody else who signed up, whether it's through Patreon or through one-time support. Obviously podcast is free. will always be free, but if you're so inclined, you can go to mountainandpray.com slash support to check out all the options. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Jessica Lewis. Jessica is a Montana-based metalsmith who's best known for the beautifully unique jewelry she creates for her online shop, Ruby and Revolver. She's also the mother of a two-year-old daughter, who she's raising with her husband in the home they constructed with their own hands, located in Montana's Bitterroot Valley. Thanks to her tireless work ethic and disciplined creativity, Jessica has built an authentic and full life around the things she loves the most, her family, her craft, and western landscapes. Montana's rugged mountains and valleys have been a part of Jessica's life for as long as she can remember, and even though she's traveled widely, she's always returned to Big Sky Country. The Rocky Mountain landscapes inform many aspects of her work, as does her ethic of doing more with less. By American standards, she and her family embrace a purposefully minimalist lifestyle, which allows Jessica to focus on quality over quantity in both her professional and personal endeavors. In our world of constant connectivity and endless distraction, I'm truly inspired by Jessica's genuine and mindful approach towards living a simple yet rich and meaningful life. Jessica was kind enough to take a break from her numerous projects for this fun conversation about her life, creative process, and love of Montana. We chatted about how she got her start making jewelry and how the impending birth of her daughter inspired her to pursue art full-time. We talked about how she began making jewelry with the simplest of tools and how the desire for fancy equipment can sometimes distract from the act of making art. We talk a lot about parenthood, and Jessica explains how becoming a mother shifted her perspectives on work and life. We talk about our shared appreciation for Stoic philosophy and how several specific books have impacted Jessica's creativity. We talk about the importance of international travel and wisdom gained from spending time abroad. And as usual, we discuss favorite books about the West, the best advice she's ever received, and several of her funny and unexpected hobbies. I really love this conversation, and I know you will, too. Thanks again to Jessica for taking the time to talk. So when you meet somebody, never met them, and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? You know, for the first time in my life, it's not like a five-minute long response. Well, a little of this and a little of that. I think I kind of just sum it up right now with, I'm a metalsmith. I 
And um, if I'm honest, I feel like um, a mother, you know, I feel like those are the two things right now in my life that kind of take um, precedence. And the two things that really, I divide my time between. Also, you know, there's a number of other things that call for my attention. But those are the two things that I think, you know, really, really sum it up for me right now is being a mom and and being a metalsmith. Yeah. Well, I want to learn a lot about your metal smith work and then selfishly i want to get parenting advice from you so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna talk about those um maybe the maybe the first thing we can talk about is your jewelry because i love it and i think it's so unique and you know I, when you scroll through different social media it seems that there are a lot of people doing that kind of work but i something about yours caught my eye and just you know your creative process and the life you're living up there in Montana. So maybe could you just describe your jewelry first of all, and then we can dig into how you, how you make it. Well, first of all, thank you. I think, um, the thing maybe I struggle with the most is making sure I have like a unique voice in a world that's pretty saturated, you know, with, yep. um, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of jewelers I admire and a lot of folks out there doing really beautiful work. And so it's one of the things you kind of struggle with as an artist is how do you make your work unique? So thank you for saying that. Um, I think maybe one of the things that sets my work apart, if you could say that, is I allow it to be a little bit raw. And um, I tend to sort of like things that are a little bit less refined and maybe just have a little bit of character. Other people might see it um, as flaws. But I think there can be a difference there. For me, I know when it's an error in my craft and I know it when it's like just a, a part of the metal. I use a lot of reclaimed – well, actually, primarily now I use reclaimed metal and um, it kind of dictates the work I do. Sometimes I melt it down, but oftentimes I use it as sort of – have just a way to kind of I don't know, it sound, gets a little woo, but letting the metal speak to me as far yeah. as what what can be made with it. You know, this is this really rough piece of metal. It's not going to work for everything. It's not going to turn into a diamond engagement ring. You know, it's going to be have some texture and it's going to have some grit to it. And it's just not going to work for a million different pieces of jewelry. It's going to work for a specific kind. And so I kind of let that guide me a little bit. Um, and so I often don't have like mass, um, quantities. I have really one of a kind of pieces and they don't often, um, lend themselves to being mass produced or really ever. <laughs> it's kind of like, this is the one piece that came from that and it is what it is, you know? Yeah, definitely. And and so you've been doing this for, for quite a while now. Did it take you a while to, to get to the point where you were proud of the, you know, quote, imperfections in the work? I mean, it's obviously that's that is the product. That's the end goal. But I, was there ever a point where you were trying to get it perfect and then you realized that's just kind of a, a waste of time and it takes the, the character out of it in the end? Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, you know, it's easy to get into a comparison game. Yep. You look at other people, you know, super flawless, like high finish stuff. But it's also not necessarily while I appreciate it. And I think like a lot of those piece, people are masters of their craft. It's not necessarily what, what I want to wear. And so I had to sort of um, come to terms with that and realize like what I'm drawn to and what, you know, what speaks to me. And it's definitely stuff that has a little bit of um, 
a rugged edge to it. And I still struggle with that. I mean, there's still times where I'm like, oh, maybe I should, you know, step up, step it up and, and do better and have it, you know, you I question it. But for the most part, I find myself pretty consistently coming back to being okay with that kind of style and being that, that being my, my voice. Cause that's what I, that's what I'm drawn to. Yeah. It seems like that's kind of a common theme across any kind of art is it just, it takes, so it takes a long time and, or not a long time, but a lot of experience, whether that's a year yeah. or, or, or a decade of, of just going through making mistakes and then oh, finding sure. your, your voice, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so we, you mentioned reclaim metal. Can you, talk a little bit about that and like what's an example of some reclaimed metal that you use well it comes from all over um i do like i'll buy up um old pieces from like an estate sale or hit up pawn shops and find um you know like i I just found a batch of like absolute beautiful sterling spoons um cool that Yeah, at a pawn shop, you know, and so I kind of scour all over the place and look for wherever I go, wherever I travel. um, I'm just constantly on the lookout for um, just kind of the odd sale. And then I also rely on my dad somewhat, too. Mm -hmm. He's a resource because he's in metalwork. He oftentimes has access to folks that are getting rid of, you know, big quantities of reclaimed metal that I can access, which has actually been in recent years as I've grown been pretty nice just because, um, you can't always keep a steady, you know, a steady supply in just buzzing to the random pawn shop and whatnot. So I supplement from, you know, a bunch of different places and there are actually some vendors now and it's becoming more popular. So there are places that you can go and you can actually buy, certified reclaim metal which has been helpful too and i supplement there sometimes as well that's cool that, that and that's it's kind of like a, a treasure hunt you know finding that, yeah. that stuff and you never know that's really neat um so how did you get into this like when did you initially start because you know there's obviously a lot of kind of standard artistic practices painting photography but you know right. metal work is is very unique so what what piqued your interest in it initially you know, I was always drawn to, I've always, I've always liked, um, I've always liked art in general. I've always like tinkered, you know, whether it was pottery or, you know, painting or drawing or whatever, I've always been drawn to it. But for whatever reason, the metal medium is what really stuck with me. And I, I just started, um, by reading books and messing around and essentially, Again, hitting up the old pawn shops and getting um, just old machinery, old tools. And I just started um, just messing around. And that's been, gosh, um, that's been almost like 15 years ago. Wow. That started accumulating. Yeah. And it was just a process of trial and error, honestly. It was really making bad mistakes and making really ugly stuff for a really long time and just learning from it. And just trying again. <laughs> it was just um, keeping at it, I suppose. And could you talk a little bit about when you started the tools you use? Because I've, I've had conversations with different artists on this podcast, and we've talked about this um, this kind of 
idea that that upcoming or new artists have thinking, well, I need a lot of fancy gear, like especially in photography or something like that. I need a fancy camera before I can do it. But time and again, there have been artists on here that started with the most basic equipment you can get. And I read somewhere that you followed a similar um, strategy when you started out. Can you, can you discuss that? You know, I feel like that's in just in life and anything. It's like you make what you have work, you know, whether it's gear to go outdoors or whether it's, you know, gear in the studio, you sort of, if you really want to do it, you kind of make it happen. And, um, I had everything I've had and I still use a lot of this to this day, but I use, you know, I went to pawn shops and got like old anvils, old hammers. None of this was jewelry specific. None of this was, um, high end. I actually randomly ended up purchasing on accident, unbeknownst to me, some of my dad's old. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> out of his, yeah. He made, he had some anvils that he, he had per- or he had made out of stainless steel and cool. I, I ended up buying them randomly and we figured it out later. But, um, so, you know, just hammers, tools, metal snips, saws, nothing I had until I would say even in the last five years was even really jewelry specific besides my torch. That sort of, that's one thing that I feel like I really, you know, you kind of had to, um, put a little research in and you wanted to make sure you had something that wasn't too big to burn like tiny little fittings and finishings and whatnot. So that was the one thing that I, you know, spent some money on and, um, that was jeweler specific, but everything else was really, and a lot of it still is pretty, um, like the school, old school, even some tools of like blacksmiths of the past, you know, that's so cool. And I, I completely agree that you just, you just need to do the work. Like we were talking yeah. a little bit before we started recording about this podcast. And I mean, when I started this podcast, I went to Best Buy and bought the cheapest microphone they had, plugged it into my computer <laughs> and then go. You know, and I screwed up a million times and there are times when it sounds bad, but, you know, you don't even know what equipment you need until you're deep in it. And um, I think that's I think that's very great advice, great advice for anybody in any artistic endeavor. Um, You obviously you and the rest of my guests know a lot better than I do. um, But I I think that's so important. Um, So. What's your studio like? Like, what's the the physical space where you work, and how important is that space to your creative process? Well, it's a real improvement from the kitchen that I was working. <laughs> Once again, you just got started, you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, a step up from having metal in your cereal. But um, <laughs> the first time in my life, I've actually had a a real functioning studio, and it, it, I feel really lucky to have it. Um, because I got to design it and I, you know, it's not, it's, it's not fancy, but I did, you know, put some time into some hardwood, um, shelving and some really solid wood for, you know, so that I can hammer on that's really sturdy, that can take a beating. And so on each, um, on each side of the room, there's sort of, um, shelving and benches that I built and they all just make sense for the kind of the flow of the shop, which is, it's really nice. And it actually does make a difference as far as efficiency goes and just, you know, places for things. It's nice to have a place for your, your hammers and your saws and, you know, just everything has its place. Not that I'm the best at keeping it super orderly all the time, but it's nice to have that and to have, you know, it's toxic. Um, and so it's nice to have 
I have commercial venting in there now, which is a huge step up. Mm -hmm. And um, also having a lot of natural light, which I just as a human really value. I love a lot of natural light and I have a nice view and um, I really, it's actually my favorite room in the house. Honestly, I really love it. Yeah. I would imagine, especially now with the, with the kiddo that having your own space is even more important for the safety aspect, but also just being able to get away and, and have some, you're a designated space. At least that's the experience I've had oh <laughs> with two gosh. crazy little girls. <laughs> I, sometimes it's actually part of the motivation for having something a little bit of a portable studio because even having it here, and I really, I function well on having chunks of time, and it's hard to find with a, with a little two year old running around, you know. And so sometimes I wish it was detached. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as of now, I'm, I'm still just thankful to have a space to work in, you know. And so correct me, I, I read a lot of stuff online about you, and it very well could be wrong. So don't hesitate to correct me if I get this wrong. But I, I read that you you had worked in, in several different jobs and careers before you decided to dive into this full time. And yeah. so what was the point? when you decided, all right, I can make a living doing this full time. And you made the leap to do that. Um, well, I've been working in, um, social work for, for many, many years. And I, I think that that really, it was, I was working with, um, victims of violent crime and, um, that sort of had a shelf life for me as far as, um, sort of just my my mental health to be honest sure. with you it's just a very it was a very sort of heavy job and I really value work that helps I do I really value it but at some point I felt like um I was becoming a little toxic and sort of viewing the world in um in a darker way yep. seeing maybe a, a cute family and and kind of wondering what was really going on it, it just when violent crime is your is your life day in and day out, it just sort of it colors the way you see the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I, you know, I had actually gone into a different helping career, gone back to school, and I was doing respiratory therapy, and um, I became pregnant, and um, it was sort of this. Um, really odd time to quit. I had tried to quit a few times before, but I, it's this weird clarity that comes with being pregnant and sort of the legacy you want to leave and the life you want to, you know, show your child. And it was like, I wanted to know that I gave it my all. I wasn't, I didn't have a huge safety net or really much of a safety net at all. And so that kind of always held me back. Um, but I, I decided that it was it was kind of now or never. It was either, you know, give it my all or sort of just resign myself to just, you know, doing the work I was doing. And I decided to uh, give it my all. I also I also didn't want to have um, my daughter in uh, for me. I just didn't want to have her in daycare every single day. I yep. wanted to be really like actively involved. And um, so, yeah, so I was, gosh, um, three months pregnant, I think. And. I just quit. That's awesome. And gave it a go. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to dig into that a little more if possible. Not that I'm like a psychologist or anything, but I think a lot of people have that 
you know, a lot of a lot of people have kids and a lot of people have this idea of this dream they want to pursue. But for one reason or another, they don't have the guts to do it. And so, I mean, where do you think that came from? Where I mean, where do you think you what do you think is different about you that gave you the guts to say, all right, this is super important to me and it's super important that I set an example that I can be proud of to my daughter and you actually did it versus just thinking it and then saying, oh, but I got bills to pay and I'll just do this for a little bit longer and I'll reconsider later. I mean, where does that where does that braveness come come from? You know. I wish I could say that I'm just brave, but I don't think that's necessarily it. I think I'm one part live in the moment, like go big or go home. And one part, you know, you've got to be responsible. (laughs) Coming, I grew up pretty poor. And Mm so, you know, that's definitely a part of like, I wanted to be able to give indie maybe more than more than I had, you know, and, um, I think every parent probably wants that on some level. And so I don't really know what made the difference. I think there is something inside of me that maybe when, um, when I'm feeling really fearful of something, there's something in me and I can't really identify it to be honest with you, but it makes me not want to sort of give into it and makes me kind of want to jump. Um, I think, you know, maybe part of that is that I saw my dad do that, even though he comes from absolutely nothing. And he, you know, he, he made a go at, um, living his life creatively. And I think that's definitely an inspiration. Um, and just knowing that I didn't want to live, not knowing that I tried, um, I can say that that for me, for some reason, that was just very daunting to me to, to know that I hadn't given it my all. Yeah, yeah. that that makes sense. I mean, I, I had a similar experience when, when my first daughter was being born. It was like you know four years ago now when my wife was pregnant. But mm-hmm. that was, um, and I don't know that I, it was like a conscious thing. But looking back, I feel like a lot of different things kind of shifted and a lot of different things aligned. And I think my tolerance for, for lack of a better word, bullshit, uh, disappeared and, Mm -hmm. um, or or at least reduced a whole lot. And I had a, it's interesting how that happens. Um, and I'm not brave at all, but, but I think that, I think the idea of wanting to be an, be an example and understanding the role of being an example to this little human that's going to be looking up to you is if if you got a certain kind of personality, it's pretty damn heavy, um, in a good way though, you know? Yeah. I, you know, coming from someone, I wasn't really on the kid train. I wasn't planning on having kids. It wasn't really in my um, trajectory. And, and I was shocked at, um, how profoundly I really feel like it sort of just changed me without even, I don't know, just making that conscious choice. It just, there is something that sort of shifts inside you, you know, in, in a many, in a million different ways. Um, but yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. It, all these cliches you hear about being a parent, I've learned they're cliches for a reason. Totally. <laughs> and when I say them, I'm like, oh man, like, say them to people who don't have kids. I'm like, I'm sorry I'm saying this, but it's true. I promise it's true. <laughs> I've caught my saying that. It's cliche, I know, but it is true. Yeah. Um, so thinking about just the creative mentors, you mentioned your dad. Is there anybody else that comes to mind or other people, you don't have to know, you can know them or not, people you've read about that have influenced yeah. your your life as a creative? 
Um, yeah, there's actually one um, one guy in particular. His name is Matt Ike. He um, he makes these beautiful steel resonator guitars. Um, they're absolute like it's like next level work, um, in my opinion, as far as the way he runs his business, um, the way he makes his guitars, the sound that he creates from them. And he's a huge mentor. I've actually never met him. Um, and he's one of those people again, that I connected to from social media, but he, he's, um, who I would consider, you know, kind of in the big leagues as far as his skill level and just his expertise and, he, I don't even know how we ended up connecting through someone, through someone, you know, one of those kind of deals, but he sort of took me under his wing a little bit when I was kind of just starting and took the time to write me this letter about sort of, you know, finding your own voice in your work. And, um, and just, um, I was just amazed that someone took the time, you know, yeah, and yeah. still to the day can be someone that I, if I have a question about a new torch or a new method or um, even random business stuff, um, which is not my strong suit, he's very good at it. And he's been able to sort of help me and direct me and inspire me hugely. And, you know, we're in very different, but sort of similar fields. And um, yeah, it's um, it, the name is Mule Resonator Guitars, and he's made guitars for all these really prolific artists and it's just inspiring to me I, I think he's like a daily source of inspiration but there are so many people uh, that I could go on about um in jewelry in life in you know environmental issues that inspire me daily but um he's definitely probably the first one that comes to mind cool I'll put a link to his his um social media and site or whatever on our on the webpage so people can look that up and then Continuing on that theme, are there any books about creativity or the creative process that have been important to you that you would recommend? You know, no, not necessarily on the creative process. I've read a million books on jewelry making, on, yep. you know, real tedious sort of technique. Um, I actually find the book that I kind of has been useful for me now is actually um the obstacle is the way oh i love that book isn't that a great book i love it i I sent it to somebody recently um because i just think it is such a powerful book i love that thing oh good yeah i do too and i i find that it's one of the books that i actually uh return to like pretty regularly just when I'm in a creative slump or when I'm spending time building this house versus working in the studio or, you know, whenever I just find it, I, I really, I'm really drawn to stoicism and, and that book particularly just kind of these bite-sized chunks of, um, things that you can take into your daily life. I just, I've actually found that to be really useful for me recently. Um, me yeah. too. I, I think that that, was such a surprising book. I got it on Kindle because it was like on sale for 99 cents or something. And it was so uh-huh. good. I ended up having to buy the paper copy because it's, I, I can't, I can't recommend it enough to people. And um, yeah. just in general, stoicism, it opened my, my mind to that. And there's so many parallels between stoicism and then like Buddhism and just this idea yeah. of not letting your emotions just run wild like a crazy horse like mine, mine does all day long. <laughs> It's just like a constant reminder for me when I'm in like a shit mood or when, you know, when I'm having a pity party or whatever it is, it always sort of, 
it kind of pulls me out of the like of a funk a little bit. And um, I just feel like there's a lot of little gems of knowledge in that book. Um, so yeah, I think that for me, it actually translates pretty well creativity with creativity, you know? Definitely. And people who listen to this podcast, a lot are probably sick of hearing me say this, but have you ever read <laughs> The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? I haven't. And I've actually heard you mention it and been meaning to pick that up. It's, and I, I haven't gotten around to it. It's so good. And it's it, it, it pairs well with Obstacle is the Way and just this idea of the what he calls the resistance and this fear of – of putting yourself out there. And it that's what I was thinking about a second ago when you were saying that when you are fearful of something, you have this tendency to want to go towards it. And that's kind of what that whole book is about, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, I actually have read a little bit, just a few snippets, because um, you've kind of piqued my interest on it, but about resistance and about sort of just the act of making yourself do it, even if it's feeling like um, maybe it's not there or maybe you don't have it or maybe you're not creatively like feeling super creative. Yep. Um, and I, I mean, that makes sense to me. And especially when you're doing your art as your, as your business, you sort of have to do that. Yeah. Some level. Oh, definitely. There's some quote, but I can't remember who said it, but he said, so I asked him, does he wait for inspiration to strike? And he says, yes, I do. But luckily it strikes every single morning at 8am when I sit down <laughs> at my desk to start writing. <laughs> um, do you have any, yeah. speaking of that, do you have any, do you have a certain daily routine? I imagine it's mixed up a bit with the with the introduction of the the kiddo. But is there a certain I don't know, procedure? Sounds surgical, but are there certain <laughs> steps you take every morning to to get the creative juices going, or is it what what does your process look like? I do. I mean, I think for me. It has changed, you know, and it continues to change even as as Indy gets a little older. Every morning we used to go on a hike every morning, whether it was behind the ridge or behind the house on the ridge, excuse me. But, um, you know, and now she's she wants to cruise on her own and she wants to do her own thing. And um, so it's it's always evolving for me. I don't necessarily get to schedule my days as much as I'd like to. But I think for me, having um sweating every day, um, moving every day, getting some fresh air every day is probably the thing that I, I make sure to build into my day. And I don't necessarily get to choose necessarily when that is all the time. But for me, if I can, um, I try to make that in the morning and, and maybe a little break in the afternoon if I can, Mm -hmm. um, and sort of just, um, coffee, sweating, um, and, if I'm lucky, getting to write down a few thoughts, um, that's something that goes by the wayside a little bit for me right now is being able to journal regularly. Um, but I think those things for me really help help with the creative process. Man, if I don't get a, a good sweat in, I, I kind of um, get a little stagnant. Oh, yeah. Same. Not stagnant for me, but uh, kind of crazy. And then my wife yeah. was like, go yeah. outside and swing that kettlebell around until you about throw up. And then I do. And then yeah. everybody's in a better mood. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, I know. And, it, you know, some days for me, it, it you know, some days I get to run um, up the ridge behind the house. And some days I answer emails on my exercise bike, you know, and it's just motherhood right now. And I just take what I can get and I'm thankful for getting to sweat for 45 minutes or whatever it is, you know, but making sure that that's a part of my day is, is key for sure. Definitely. So 
you, you've mentioned a few times the ridge behind your house. So I want to talk about Montana and where you're located. So wh- exactly where are you right now? Well, where's so your house? I'm, I'm in the Bitterroot Valley. Um, so you know all the massive fires uh, two years ago. Yep. Uh, those were right behind my house. That's uh, that's where we're located. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, we're right there. Yeah, a large portion of our property actually um, – Got a little damage from that. Um, we had a good morale year last year. Um, wow. But yeah, so that's kind of, that's right where we're at. We're in the, it's um, the Florence area. It's, that would be the closest kind of town, non-town that we're um, in, you know, the vicinity of. I love but that area. That's, that is, that valley too. is just, is just unbelievable. It's just hard to understand how pretty it is until you spent time there. Yeah, it really, I, I feel really I feel really lucky to be so close to it and have, you know, access to it on the, on the regular for sure. And where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Montana, actually. I was not born in Montana. My family's from Montana, but, um, my dad, um, he used to work for NASCAR back in the day. Really? Yeah. In North Carolina? No, no. In California. Oh, cool. Yeah. He, well, he, we were based in California, but he, he was gone every week, of course. Um, we were based out of California, and he traveled. He was just a, a pit boss. He so he just did the work on the cars. You That's know. cool. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, it was a. I think he really loved it. He really loved it. But um, with a family and um, whatnot, it, it became kind of tiresome. I think for my mom and the sure. time away and whatnot. And so when I was six, they moved back to um, Montana and. Um, I've left numerous times, but I've always come back. So it's definitely home. And so looking back at your, your childhood there and just kind of growing up in that area, are there any experiences you can think of, whether artistic or you know, time outside, adventures, that like very specific experiences that kind of shaped your, your outlook and your love for that landscape in the West? Um, yeah, as far as, you know, s- specific experiences – I have like, um, you know, kind of these glimpses or these like memories of, you know, maybe being at my dad's hunting camp or camping with the family or um, back in the day, my dad used to um, paddle a bit. And so he'd take us on the river. And, you know, those are the things that that I sort of those are the happy memories from my childhood that I think, um, you know, connected me to Montana and connected me to the, to the sports that I'm into now or the activities that I'm drawn to. Um, I specific memories, not so much more of just kind of the feeling of Montana and access to public lands yep. and, you know, just kind of, yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I asked that question cause you know, I grew up in North Carolina and I have like very, very specific trips of when I came West, you know, three or four trips that I think of. Uh But then when I talk to people like you or people that were grew up in that landscape, the answer is more, it's just kind of that it blended together and was just part of your life. Um, So, I mean, I think that's, I think that's cool to compare and contrast that. Um, Mm -hmm. It is interesting. And so I read that you went to college at University of Montana and then decided to take off and and do some traveling. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you yeah. go? Gosh, all over the place. We went to, um, Southeast Asia was our destination, but we went to, um, 
gosh, Nepal and Laos and Thailand and Vietnam and um, India for a bit. And we spent about a year um, doing a little work in Vietnam. And um, What kind of work? Working at a women's clinic. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was um, sort of in the the height of the the Maoist insurgency there. And um, the Red Cross had sort of pulled out at that point in time. And they were just, it sounds very um, dramatic, but it didn't feel that way being there. But there was a lot of need for sort of volunteer help in these um, really sort of rural clinics and I mean they have one of the highest maternal mortality rates you know and um and so we spent some time volunteering there and um and then honestly just um just traveling and seeing the sights and buzzing around you know um so what were the what were the big lessons learned from that trip because I had never really traveled internationally. I'd been on like a climbing trip in South America, but it was the mountain. So, I mean, it could have been, it could have been Colorado, really. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then my wife and I moved to Central America, um, for a year. And that was at, when I was 30 or no, I was 31. Uh, and uh, it was such a unbelievable, um, change in perspective and just a formative life yeah. experience at that age. And so, Yours was when you were in, you know, college age. So how how did that affect yeah. your your outlook? Oh gosh, I think you know, if you can if you can do it, I feel like everyone should because it is pretty profound. It's uh, you know, especially living in rural Montana. Um, you know, it's a it's a real paradigm shift to go somewhere where you're you don't speak the language, you're yep. not familiar, you know, with the culture beyond you know the few books you read. Um, and to sort of just be out of your comfort zone and um, seeing a completely different way of life. And um, I think, you know, learning to roll with the punches, mm-hmm. learning to be uncom- be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of just having this appreciation for how different cultures can be. But there's also these these sort of common threads of humanity that kind of surpass language and culture and, um, can kind of bind you, you know, it's, it's surprising the people you connect with when you're, when you're abroad. And I think that's a really, I don't know. I think that's like an invaluable lesson, you know, I completely know. And I completely agree. And I think being able to look at the United States from the outside looking in, instead of being in the middle of it, I think that, yeah, I think that's very yeah, that was very valuable to me. And then one of the lessons I learned, which ties into my next question for you, was the importance of living simply and yeah. how you don't need all this stuff constantly that's just <laughs> overtaking you know that can overtake your life. And I read yeah. I read somewhere you know that you are you know very focused on the idea of doing more with less. And can you talk about that? Just the the idea of living simply and why that's important to you and your family. You know, I think there's, it's like a, it's a loaded question and like, meaning that there's a lot of different layers to it. I think, you know, when you travel, you see, you know, I mean, in America, there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different socioeconomic strata and whatnot, but there's also um, a lot of excess, a lot of the American dream is, you know, this suburban house and this picket fence and this really nice car and, 
and that's success, you know? And, um, and I find that, you know, I'm not really interested in that (laughs) at all. And I, I think that we can get really tied up in, in wanting more and, you know, equating that with happiness and a lot of the stuff, you know, that we acquire, it needs maintenance and it, it requires payments and you have to work more to have it. And, or you have to hire someone to maintain it. And I think you can just kind of get caught up in this spider web of tying yourself down and, and sort of limiting yourself. Um, and I think it's kind of a cultural phenomenon. And when you, you travel, you see, first of all, a lot of folks that have it a lot, a lot worse than you do, Yep. but also a lot of folks that have a lot less and live really beautifully. And yes are very tied to their communities and are very, you know, um, in tune with, with things that maybe we've kind of lost in the shuffle of the rat race, you know? And I think, um, I think that's pretty eye opening. And I, I really just don't think having more equals any sort of happiness. You know, I think there's a level of being able to pay your bills and being able to, you know, feed yourself and whatnot that of course we all, we all need, but the, the sort of, you need this to be happy. I don't really buy into it. Have you always been like that? Or was it, was your travels or other experiences? Did that shape that idea? I think, um, I think more and more, the older I get, the more I become that way. Yeah. Um, And I don't think that I've always been that way. Um, I think that there was a period when I was younger that I probably bought into it more than I do now, you know? Yeah. And, remember being really embarrassed by my really shitty lemon of a car at high school, you know, <laughs> having like the ugliest, dumpiest car. I remember being embarrassed, you know, or my dad's really crummy pickup. I remember hiding in the front seat yeah. and him honking the horn, you know? Um, so <laughs> I think, you know, if I'm honest with myself, no, I haven't always been that way. I just, the, the older I get, the more obvious it becomes to me, I think. Yeah. Here's a, a funny quick story, but so my wife and I got married and we got all of our wedding gifts and, you know, we're from North Carolina where they just go insane with the wedding gifts and people that aren't invited to the wedding are giving you gifts and it's just crazy. So we opened them wrote thank you notes, box them up, put them in storage. And then we left for Central America. And so then we got back <laughs> and moved into our, and so in, in Costa Rica, we had like three glasses, three forks, three plates, and uh-huh. it was awesome. And then we get back and we start, go, it looked, first of all, it looks like a crate and barrel truck, like wrecked in our house <laughs> with all these boxes. And I opened, so we opened up all the boxes and I put the stuff in the cabinets and I counted and we had 135 glasses. <laughs> Stars. And wow. I was like, what the hell is going on? This is unbelievable. And, you know, yeah. it was gifts given with love and people trying to right? unite. But I mean, and, and I always wonder, like, if I had to live in Central America, would I have thought that 135 glasses was completely normal? And I, I'm scared to think I might have. And yeah. that's, and, and I, you know, that's just, that's crazy. And that's just kind of standard American stuff, you know? Exactly. It's kind of just the cultural norm. Yeah. 
Mm. Well, it's not, I'm not trying to act like I got it all figured out now because I'm far from no. that. But at least in I, that little victory, I know I don't need 135 glasses. <laughs> Isn't that funny, though, how easily you can accumulate? I mean, it happens. I have, yeah, you know, I can say that I really value this. But even even being pretty mindful, it's still easy to accumulate. It really is. It, yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah. And I, so I, I'm really making an effort with my girls to – avoid the idea, you know, get them getting that idea in their head that you need more. And so that, that brings me to parenthood. And we, we touched on this a minute ago, but being a mom, I mean, is that, has it just been a, a massive shift in thinking for you or, or how has that, how has it affected just kind of your, your overall life? I know that's a huge question. You could probably write a book about it, but <laughs> just what comes to mind when you think about changes that have occurred from being a mom? Well, I, I mean, I work a lot less, but I'm a lot busier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's, you know, the the first thing that, I mean, gosh, I thought, you know, not really, I didn't really read any parenting books. I didn't really go down that rabbit hole. Um, and I just kind of was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to have this child and this child's just going to go with me where I go and it's just going to do what I do and it's going to be great, you know? <laughs> and, you know, the sort of, I realized I was like a way better parent before I had a child. <laughs> yeah, I had it all figured out. And it's just really interesting when you get these little people who are really their their own little personalities and their own little beings. And um, you really, you know, I want, I want the experiences that we have outdoors and in life, I want them to be valuable for her and fun for her as well as for me. I don't want to... Um, turn her against any of, you know, like drag her along and have it be miserable and have her hate backpacking or something like that. So, you know, there's just a lot more, there's a lot more give and take now. And there's a lot more, I mean, again, with the cliches, but it's, you're not living um, just for yourself. You know, you've really got this other human that um, you, you sort of create your life around, you know? And so while we do still do a lot of stuff being outdoors. It just, it takes on a little bit. Uh, it looks different now, you know, it just does. Um, and she also just, you know, all the cliche things she wants me, or she makes me want to be a better person. You know, she makes me want to make the world a better place. And, um, while I felt that before, I feel a real urgency for it now. Like, really need to leave this place better for her, you know? So she gets the same experiences that I've had and she gets the same opportunities and whatnot. So knowing what you know now about being a parent and, and she's, is she two, two and a half? Is that right? She, two. She actually just turned two. Yeah. So she's just between, so I've got a three and a half and a one year old. So she's, you know. oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, um, it's wild, it's but blonde. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's fun. But knowing what you know now, two years in, like if your best friend asks you for advice on just some words of wisdom for parenthood, what comes to mind for that? Again, I'm going to I'm going to throw out another cliche here. But I think that, you know, you really have to go with your gut. You have to really, you know, they're all different. All kids are different. All lives are different. All parents are different. And you sort of have to just really go from your gut and trust yourself and, um and parent in the way that makes sense for you and your family. You know, I do it differently than my, a lot of my friends do, and that's okay. But I just do, um, 
what makes sense for us, you know, what makes sense for her and try to do it, um, the most, in the most authentic way I can. And that's sort of just, yeah, trusting myself, you know, which is, it works about 75% of the time. But. <laughs> that's better than my, mine's probably, uh, like 40, 41%. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, that's yeah, that's great. I agree, and it goes back to kind of what we were talking about with the the American dream, this idea of accumulating. And if you just kind of go with the flow of typical society, um, at least from our conversation now, I bet it would not work out the way you would want. Because I've seen that with my with my little girls, and if you if I just did it the standard American way, the results would not be what I want. And so I think it's yes. not not being afraid to go against the grain a little bit and follow your not go against the grain for the sake of going against the grain, but follow your gut. And if your gut says, Absolutely. I don't want my kids staring at an iPad three hours a day, don't let them stare at an yes. iPad three hours Yes. A day. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That one's a tough one, man. Yeah. It's very tough. Um, and so in the midst of all your work and your motherhood and everything you have going on, it sounds like you, you've got a few construction projects going on as well. <laughs> so what's going on there? Oh, timing's just beautiful. Let me tell you. Um, we, we started building, um, before I was pregnant. Um, and we built, um, we just kind of, we'd both worked construction. So it made sense for us to build our own home and financially, honestly, it made sense for us to build our own home. Um, and we found a little plot of land and, and we just decided to build a really a tiny little bungalow that was basically a studio for me and then a small living space above. And um, right now, currently, we don't have a room for our daughter. It's just um, just an open space, essentially, mm -hmm. with a studio in it. And so at some point, that becomes like pretty challenging. And I also have... Um, some like my, my grand my grandmother who's who's getting up there in age is and is going to need some um some additional help and whatnot and so we kind of took all of those things into consideration and we thought okay at some point we're going to have to have a room for our child right like yeah, yeah. <laughs> at some point like that's going to be a reality and so we decided that we were going to um, build again and then have this small space be a space that can we can have the family here that will need to be here. And so and we'll be close and we'll be able to take care of them and whatnot. And so so we started building again um, when, gosh, that's that was well, that was last summer, but we were um, evacuated for most of the summer. So we really didn't get to build. And so we are currently in the process of building basically the same place, but with a room in it, um, for our daughter. Um, so that's where we're at right now with that project. And it's just, um, it's just my husband and I, we haven't, um, outsourced any work. And so it's, um, it's a long process. It's taking, a lot longer than it did when um, she was just in my belly. <laughs> that's for sure. Oh yeah. No, well, that, I think that's super cool. I mean, obviously, it's extremely challenging. But man, what a what a sense of accomplishment to to when this all said and done. You know, I mean, and, and it's yeah. your place that you build. I mean, how many people can say they did that? You know, I mean, I'd, I had some new bookshelves put in the other day or a, a while <laughs> back, and I didn't even do that myself. <laughs> Y'all building a house. <laughs> you know. I, I do, I am proud of it, but I'm also 
I still I daydream about outsourcing it all. <laughs> <laughs> Just someone else finish it, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I do. We were really committed to using, um, you know, you have to log some of the land. And so we were able to use a lot of the a lot of what we logged in, actu- in the actual beam work of the house and stuff, um, which is really cool. And I really you know, you see a lot of, there's a lot of waste in construction. And so we, we were able to, um, have a little bit more say and, and really, you know, use stuff that we, we could stand behind and build it the way we wanted to build it. And so that part I like, but I, I definitely am over it. I'm ready to be done. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, so in the, in the midst of everything you have going on, you know, there's very, it sounds like there's very little slack in the system. And one thing I, I've admired about you from a distance and then in our communication is your seemingly very healthy relationship with electronics and social media. And it seems like you're able to use it for a tool and you're able to use it to, you know, for your business and, and to, you know, get, build relationships with people, but it's not at all like it's taken over. And so can you discuss your relationship with, with, I guess, technology, specifically social media, and how you manage to keep it in check so it doesn't seep into all the other more important parts of your life? You know, I think it's a slippery slope for a lot of us. Um, And I certainly um, don't have it all figured out by any means, but I, you know, I try to recognize the value in it. And I look at, like, if I was doing this business, you know, 20 years ago, I would be paying for advertising. I would be, you know, um, really having to really put money that I don't have into advertising and trying to get my name out there and instead being able to sort of organically, you know, um, for free post my work and reach a global audience is pretty huge. And, you know, be able to connect with people like you, be able to connect with, I have, I've actually gained a lot of like really good friends from it. So there's a lot of positives. I think there's a lot of negatives too, as we all know. And I think for me, it's when I go on there, I have to, I can go down a rabbit hole. I have gone down the rabbit hole. So I make sure that I'm posting something. I, um, I post it and I give myself a little time to respond to comments and questions, but I only give myself so much time. And if, if it doesn't, if I don't, um, answer all of them in that period of time, I have to sort of be okay with that. And sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm not, I feel like I fail at business a lot because my inbox is a freaking swamp and I have really bad correspondence. And, um, I look at some people that are just on it and I'm just, I'm not that person. And I just have to sort of be okay with it, you know, and do what I can, um, within my limitations and take the good and the bad and just sort of try not to take it too seriously. Um, again, works about 75% of the time. (laughs) There's a really good book I recently read called digital minimalism. And it's by this guy named Cal Newport who wrote a book called deep work. That was also really, really good, but it's the best, book I found on trying to manage all these different electronic inputs that are being piped into our brains. And yeah. so I'll put a, I'll put a link to that. Cause I, it's not, great. you know, a lot of them are, a lot of these books are like, just quit, just quit all social media or that quit social media is <laughs> awful. And that's just not, first of all, there's like, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of good that comes from it, but 
you got to figure out there's got to be a system in place to, to manage it or it'll easily take over. And it's extremely addictive. I mean, it's like a drug. It, it, absolutely. I know. It's shocking. Indy doesn't get, you know, she doesn't get screen time, but she can operate an iPhone. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's crazy to see. It's just very accessible to all of us. And um, I think, you know, you just have to, yeah, you have to be really aware of how much time you're spending on there. I think it's those, I have an app on my phone that will tell me like, okay, you've spent 15 minutes. Now you're done. You know? And what is that app? What's that? What is the app called? It's, it's just screen time. You just set up your, um, you set up personal, basically limitations and get up, you know, notification like, okay, you've been on 15 minutes or what, whatnot, which is what I do. I allow myself like 15 minutes. And then I don't, I try not to, I try to turn, my phone is always on silent, always. And I find that I, that allows me to be less distracted, you know, and less aware of what's going on. Um, yeah, I find that to be pretty helpful. Um, that's really, that's good advice. Um, and I think I've seen that on my phone, but never messed with it. I'm going to try that this yeah. weekend. Thank you. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's nice. I, you know, I think there's also just this expectation that we all need to get back to each other right away. And I, I don't think it's realistic, you know? No, it's definitely, it's not if you're doing anything. I mean, if you have no, anything exactly. going on, you can't right. just be, you know, reacting to every single one of these messages that come in. Because, I mean, I, I'm just, I just feel overwhelmed with it all day. And, and oh, um, so I can't imagine how, how you feel with that. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I'm just really bad at it, to be honest with you. I'm just really bad and I check out. That's what I do. Well, that's I sh- a blessing. I turtle shell is what I, I'm not sure that I recommend it. I don't know that it's even healthy. I'm like, well, I'm overwhelmed now. Shutting her down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one more big question about creativity Um so knowing everything you know and all your experience um, doing this for, for so many years and doing it part-time and then making the transition to full-time, if – and I bet you get this question a lot. But for somebody who wants to be a professional creative, whether that's photography, writing, jewelry making, do you have any advice, standard advice that you, you give to folks when they ask you for that? You know, yeah, I do. And it's actually advice that my friend Matt – gave to me, which is, and, um, I might be, you know, again, being a little cliche here, but it's sort of really identifying your own voice and allowing yourself to be true to that and stick to that. I think again, social media, it's, um, it's easy to sort of be really inspired by someone and sort of allow that inspiration to maybe um, influence your own work. And I think on some level, we're all inspired by mountains. We all love, you know, the rivers and lakes and Montana. And there's a lot of people inspired by the same things that I'm inspired by, but sort of trying to make it the work that you, you produce be true to your own voice. I think, um, I think, man, I think that's the most important thing. I think that's all we really have. You know, there's a million people creating a million different, beautiful, things and the only thing we really have to offer is our own voice you know um and so i i I don't know that there's a clear-cut way to find that but i think sort of really being honest with yourself and sort of identifying the things that inspire you and are important to you and and really allowing those to direct the work that you do i think that's great advice that's awesome advice you know easier a lot easier said than done i mean i think you're finding your voice is the result of 
15 years of working your ass off. And so I think, I think that's part of it is putting in the work, you know, I don't think, I think in a social media world, it's like, Oh, there's this expectation that you can just kind of, um, maybe skip some steps, but I think you re- I really do believe in putting in the work. I really do. Yeah. Well that, yeah. that shows, it shows in your, your artistic endeavors, but then <laughs> with everything you have going on, I mean, just simply building a house with your own hands, <laughs> <laughs> You're not afraid of hard work. I think we can we can all agree on that. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate um, that. That's a, super important. So I've got some quick questions that I like to ask everybody. Your answers can be as long as you want, but the, the questions are pretty quick. Can we just run through those and then I'll let you get yeah. back to everything you got going on? Absolutely. Um, do you have any favorite books about the American West? You know, I am really bad at favorites, terribly bad. And I actually dreaded this question because I was like, I'm just really bad at narrowing it down. You know, I can think of a book that really impacted me. Yeah. Um, and which was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Yeah. Um, that's sort of, I would say, what sort of started maybe me down that genre. I think that was uh, like a really profound book and a really um, just really well done. I think that was one of my favorites, but also it's also a lot of the books I don't know lately I've been reading have also been really hard and very sad. And I actually love fiction, but I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. Um, but I think that as, as far as of the West, I think that that's the one that comes to mind. Um, but I've actually been really meaning to, uh, kind of go be a part of your little book club because there seems like a lot of really good content on that and a lot of authors that I haven't heard of. And there's always, there's a million books I want to read at all times, you know? Oh, I um, definitely know. It's, it's out of control for me. Yeah. And now these publishers have started sending me free books. And so it's, yeah, it's like, uh, it's like winning the lottery, except Mm -hmm. it just like creates this level of franticness to need to be reading all these damn books. Um, so much time in the day. Yeah, exactly. And and what's your favorite book of all time? If you can pick one or you can just rattle off some of your favorites. It doesn't have to be in the West. Gosh, you know, I actually, um, I, I can't say that I have even a favorite that comes to mind. I've read so many books and I can only think of things recently that I've read that have really, I actually, because of reading The Obstacle is the Way, I actually went in and read um, The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, you know, I think that was a really, obviously, it's just a really profound book. Um, I think The Obstacle is the Way wraps it up really nicely, but I still really enjoyed reading the original. Um, and then I just got done with... Um, Sapiens. Oh um, man, that is so good. It's so good. Uh, I thought it was actually a bit depressing too. Um, I've heard I've heard people say that before, and and I can see that. And just just um, just sort of you know on the extinction of <laughs> animals and whatnot, like that stuff really hits me hard. Um, but I also found it to be. I just thought it was very well done, and I, yeah, I thought it was excellent. And so I read. I and I just started. Um, the Daily Stoic. I'm really on a stoicism kick. Um, so I've got that in my now. office. I read that. I read that every day when I get to work because it's so valuable. It is. It's so valuable. And it's a good it's actually I kind of probably forgot to mention that. But that's kind of become a little part of my ritual is fitting that into the day. Yeah. Pe- I can't recommend that enough. Um, and I think you're the first person who's mentioned Daily Stoic. And I, I, I should have thought of that before because I, I have that. 
on my desk at work and I read it. And it's so cool to see that these people that lived 2,000 years ago are, were dealing with the same exact problems yeah. that we're dealing with now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a pretty amazing book. Um, you probably don't watch many films with everything you have going on, but in, in your life, have there been any documentaries or films that have been meaningful to you that, that you would recommend other people watch? You know, um, I haven't watched a, a film. I, I'm really quite honest here in two years. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, and I've um, never had a TV. So um, good for you. Well, I, you know, it's honestly, it wasn't even really a choice. It's just like life is busy. And yeah. it's not that I don't enjoy occasional, you know, Netflix on my iPhone occasionally, you know, but sure. I, I don't really have you know, I, I kind of love, I love the Montana, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound really cliche here, but I loved A River Runs Through It, even though it sort of, um, brought a lot of fishing tourism to Montana. I, I, oh, love, yeah. that. I love that film and I'm really antiquated as far as anything new for a long time. I honestly, um, kind of steered away just because of the line of work I was in. I steered away from, anything that was really heavy and kind of watched um, fluff for a little while because I really had a hard time handling anything with like any sort of violence or um, since enough time and space away from that, I've, I feel um, recovered. But um, for a while, I, I, I really didn't even have anything substantial to add to that list. So I'm not quite the best person to do the favorite films. And I apologize for my boring answer. I like that answer a lot, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think, um, yeah, I've, I've ever since my girls have been born, I've it's rare that I watch a movie. They were they were out of town mm-hmm. recently, and I watched The Dawn Wall, which is about Tommy Caldwell climbing El Capitan. Oh, yeah, and that I would was love to see that. it was really really good. And I think just the fact that I actually watched a full movie all the way through was just super cool. And um, <laughs> totally, really luxury. <laughs> yes, I was living, I was being such a slob, just chilling, watching movies. Um, no, I, I think that's a great answer. So you've got all this different stuff going on, you know, your work and your hobbies. Is there a certain activity that is funny or surpri- that people would be surprised that you do a hobby or just some activity that's either weird or, <laughs> or funny <laughs> that you that you do on a regular basis? Um, I think there's a couple things, I guess. I um, I have my skydiving pilot's license. Um, what? Really? I to, yeah, I uh I actually don't, I haven't jumped in a long time, um, but I used to um, jump out of planes. Um, and uh, that was uh, for a period of li- my life. And um, I do love a dirt bike. Um, and I'm a total history nerd, total history nerd, love history. Um, so those are kind of maybe things people wouldn't guess on the surface. I would not have guessed. I mean, they make sense now, but I, I just would have never pulled skydiving out. That's I want to. I've never done it before. I need to do that. You know, it is. Uh, I loved it. I actually, did really, really love it. Um, it's an interesting. Uh, it's a bit of a different culture than I've ever been a part of before. But it was really. It was a fun period of my life, and it, I definitely have a fear heights and so it was a definite um it pushed me you know in a lot of different ways and i met a lot of really interesting really kooky people and um yeah it was yeah it actually kind of surprised me it kind of fell into my lap and i um got the opportunity and and got into it for a while 
Very cool. Yeah. If you had to pick one place, and this is a hard question, but if you had to pick one place that you would say is your favorite location in the West, where oh. would that be? One, really. Sheesh, that's tough. This whole um, series of questions, I realize now that you don't like favorites. It's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. you know, what comes to mind, I would say... I'm not going to pick one. I would say what comes to mind, there's, I've had a lot of incredible experiences in the Bob Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, who doesn't love the Bob, right? Yeah. Um, the Bitterets, because they're right, they're my daily go-to. And I, I really love my, um, the Sawtooth and the Frank Church and the Middle Fork of the Salmon. And um, that area really, really speaks to me. Um so how about four? <laughs> that no, that works, and I agree with all those. I think those are that's that's a good list. I've never, I've never been the Frank Church, and I've never been in the Bob, which is oh, unacceptable. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think um, you, of all people, I think you would absolutely love it. It's really, you know, it's steeped in history, and it's also just, it's really expansive. It's a really, really pretty dynamic area. I think you'd love it. I really do. Yeah, I, I know. I've driven, you know, driven through there going 80 miles an hour, but never gotten mm-hmm. back in there. The, I'll do it eventually. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, you know, I think it was actually funny timing because um, I was talking to my friend uh, Matt, who I mentioned before, and I'm I'm just getting ready to embark on a different phase of jewelry making where I've I've purchased this equipment to be able to do like large scale meltdowns and um, to be able to really uh, repurpose a lot of metal. And I've been a little resistant to it because there's a part of me I I recognize that's fearful that if I I've not been able to make more and people have been buying it and that's wonderful. And there's a part of me that's if I'm quite honest that's scared that if if more is available that maybe people won't buy it or like it anymore i don't know um and you know he said to me he was like you know um you gotta let that be your guide you know and he said this to me before and it's something that comes up again and it's sort of like are you fearful are you freaked out well explore that look at that and 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 let that sort of guide the decisions you make you know is it because um is it steeped in reality or is it steeped in your own insecurity Mm -hmm. and um and sort of just, you know, being honest with yourself and, and um, allowing that to sort of, um, you know, make your decisions. I think I think that's a really solid advice in a lot of different areas of life. I agree. That, that can be universally, universally applied to, to whatever. Um, I think that's very wise. And so next to the last question, if you could make a request of the people that listen to this podcast and they're people that love the American West in one way or the other, um, you know, knowing everything you know about the landscape of the West and creativity and pursuing your passion and taking risks, um, is does something, some words of wisdom or something you would like to ask of the people that listen to this, does anything come to mind? You know, I think one of the things I struggle with most about sort of just being an artist is um, my lack of, sometimes I'm, I I want to do more. I'd like the business to develop into something that does a little bit more, that gives back a little bit more. Um, And so I've had to really look at my 
just my personal choices and like the, you know, the effect that I have as an individual and having a child on the land, on, you know, um, plastic, on, um, you know, being a good steward. And so right now for me, um, I think it's sort of taking care of my own corner of the world and doing the best I can, whether that's, you know, being aware of what you consume, um, being aware of the places that you're buying from, voting with your dollar, and just sort of um, just doing the best you can with what you've got. And um, yeah, and just sort of trying to take care of your corner of the world. And for me right now, I think that's, um, that's where I'm striving to make a difference and make changes in my life. And I guess I hope that everybody sort of does that, you know, I do know. I love that. I think that's, um, that is great. So how can people connect with you online on social media? Where should they go? Um, Ruby com is, um, probably the best way that goes straight to my swamp of an inbox and eventually I will get to it. <laughs> well, thank you. This was really, really, really fun. I, I love this. I feel like we could have talked for like five more hours, but I'll, I'll be respectful and we can <laughs> finish uh, up. But, well, but I, I really appreciate it. This was great. Thank you, Ed. It was a pleasure talking to you and thanks for taking the time. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.